This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. Every once in a while, you run into a human being that has an interesting story and a very interesting view of the world, and they're worth bringing into a podcast like this just because their point of view is going to change the way people think. For 30 years, Court Dial has asked tough questions and delivered raw answers to leaders of some of the world's most powerful companies. Court creates what's called all-in leaders. That's something that he's trademarked, which is high achievers who recognize the power of human connection, and that's what draws me to Court and his content and his approach. He's an Austin, Texas-based performance coach. He's a speaker. He's a facilitator of corporate events, and he is a disruptor, and that's my favorite kind of person to bring on to this show. Court's book is called Heretics to Heroes, a memoir on modern leadership, and I was stunned by the stories and the raw emotion in much of the first half of the book. It's something that you should definitely take a look at if you're a leader and if you care about caring and if you care about human beings. So this is Court Dial in the arena. Good morning, Court. How are you? Very good, Tony. How are you? I'm wonderful. Let's talk about your book, Heretics to Heroes. And I want to talk generally about leadership and your recipe for becoming an all-in leader. So let's start with the hero's journey. For people who don't know Joseph Campbell's work, if you could explain the the archetype and the journey in a general sense. So if somebody doesn't, if they're not familiar with that, that we can catch them up. Yeah, if anyone's ever read a book about an adventure or watched a movie, they've they've experienced the hero journey. Star Wars is a great example. But it, basically what happens is an, an, a character ends up either being enticed into taking or falls in by accident or chooses to take a journey. So the example of Luke Skywalker, he wanted to go uh, fight the rebellion. And they pass into sort of like a dark place where they don't know what they're doing. And there's always a guide that helps him. In case of Luke, it was Obi-Wan Kenobi. But there's some guide figure that helps him along the way. And they face all kinds of challenges and have to make different choices and learn different skills and things. And they ultimately become the hero of, of their own adventure. And almost always they come back to work right where they started from. They're right back in the same place, same situation, same people. But what's different is, a, is them. And that's the journey that I help leaders take from a leadership standpoint. They end up right back in their same organization. But what's different about their organization is they're different. And as a result of them becoming different, their organization performs at a different level. That, that's one of the reasons I say over and over to leaders is the only leader who needs to change is you if you want to improve performance around here. I had this conversation once with a sales leader whose company I was speaking to. And at dinner, he said, I'm going to fire the entire sales force and start over. And I think that was about 140 people or something like that that he was talking about. (laughs) 
and you've probably had this experience where something brilliant comes out of your mouth. And as soon as you, you hear it, you're like, wow. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't intend to say it, but I said out loud, what are we going to do with the third group? <laughs> and he said, I don't know what you mean. And I said, well, when we fire this group and replace them with the second group and treat them just like we treated the first group, what are we going to do different when we get to the third group? <laughs> and he said, are you saying it's me? <laughs> and I said, well, not you alone, but yes. <laughs> it's so funny how it's easy to look to things external when it's all internal. Most folks who call me in to support them initially where they're coming from is I want you to come in and fix my people for me. Mm -hmm. So I'd agree with what you said. Yeah. Why does the personal transformation have to occur before someone can lead others and change? And that's the first part of your recipe is that for someone to become a leader and particularly a transformational leader, they always have to go through that transformation themselves first. Well, it's because that's what transforms the organization. If if you think about an organization as a series of wheels sitting on top of each other, and at the top is the big wheel, it's the biggest, biggest diameter. At the bottom is the, the tiniest wheel. When the one at the top moves in any direction, the one at the bottom spins like crazy. And it's so <laughs> most leaders don't realize how much influence they have on the thoughts, feelings, behaviors of everyone in that entire organization. So by them going through this whole journey of looking at who am I in this world? What is it I'm up to? Why do we exist as an organization? Are we here just to make money? Are we here to make a difference, change the world? What are we here for? What's our vision? What's the future I'm leading from as I lead my people? That whole inquiry, and their people see this individual, he or her, going through this whole inquiry, causes the others within the organization, the ones I, I call followers, they're the ones who first sign up, to go through a similar type of of introspection because if if results are going to change are going to change I have to change and it's more than my behavior that has to change my whole relationship to whatever we're talking about my self image has to change there's so many things about myself that has to change if I'm going to perform at an entirely new level and sustain that performance I'm not a lot of people signing up for it the way you just described it court <laughs> it's a big charge oh it is and I have you know, when I'm in meetings and I'm in different organizations, different companies, and I'm always looking for is is this individual one of these few, as you say, there's very few are up to this, who is up to this. And it, I have ways of asking questions that will test a leader whether or not they may be open to this journey. And I have you ever seen Bugs Bunny have a conniption fit in one of his cartoons? Yeah, sure. I'll ask those questions to some leaders and they will physically just go into spasms because I'm asking them something as simple as, well, I've heard everything you plan on changing about your team. What about yourself do you plan on changing? And that question just causes them to freeze up. And I start to realize, wow, this person has never, ever gone there. It's going to be difficult for them, him or her to go there. And it's because what got them to the place that they are is sort of the drive and the ability to take responsibility and direct. And then they start finding out that at some point that starts being their undoing, or sometimes they don't find out that that's what's their undoing. But it brings us to the second of the, of the attributes. They have to be coachable. To become a leader, you have to be willing to be coached. Why is that, I'm going to call it a cornerstone here, and why do so, much, so many people struggle with the fact that they have to change something about themselves in order for other people to change in response to that? Well, more and more, we're not experiencing that as we grow up. 
It's not happening anymore. And and let's face this, most organizations are driven by fear. And you get ahead in the organization at best at dealing with all the fear that drives all the different behaviors and actions that go on in organizations. I'm afraid of what my boss will think. I'm afraid of all upset one of my associates. I'm afraid I'll be wrong. I'm afraid I'll look stupid. So they haven't grown up and been in an organization or even in a home or in a school that causes you on a regular basis to confront who you are and all those things I said earlier. So it's a brand new experience for them. I very often, the first time I have a a very pointed question with a leader, I'll get this look, and you probably read about it several times in my book, where they're asking, like, where did you come from? And the only way you can get away with it, doing what I do, is you have to be completely in service of that individual. Not what you think he should do or how he should run things or what she she should be working on. But what is it that she has a desire for, has a longing for? You have to be completely in service in that, of that. And if they experience you that way, they'll allow you to take them places where they typically wouldn't allow anyone to take them. Mostly we fear the wrong dangers. And I think that a big part of your book is actually having the courage to say we're fearing the wrong danger and that there's a higher value here that we need to serve. And the the thing that I'm, I'm looking at your framework here for becoming what you call an all-in leader, and some of it is identity. It's knowing who you are and what you stand for. And I'm going to ask you to just talk for a minute about the early experience you had with a leader who challenged you to understand why a life was lost in the facility and asked you the question, I don't know how many times in the book, a half a dozen times asking you to explain why this happened. And that was somebody, in my opinion, reading the story that was trying not to fear the wrong danger. They were like, wait, there's a greater danger. There's a greater value here and we need to address it. Tell me about the identity and why it's critical to stand for something like that. Well, in that case, I had made decisions and given instructions that ultimately led, if not directly, indirectly to a, a man being killed. And I, I literally was there as he passed away in front of all of us. And the manager of the facility put us all in a room and had us answer the question, how did we kill this man? And I didn't know it at the time, but he was really having the conversation for me. At least that's what I believe today. And ultimately, my answer was we killed him because he wasn't worthy of our concern. He was a contractor. He wasn't one of us. And I started to realize after realizing a number of other things that what affects performance is my relationship to people and how I interact and treat people as much as the systems and programs we have. But ultimately, what came out of that was an an inquiry of who am I, Court Dial? What is it you stand for in this world? How did you become a person who would, who would put someone, a sacred being, in a position that would get them killed. And I had to face that, and then he helped me through some conversations, choose who it is I'm going to choose to be the rest of my life. What is it I do stand for? And what I do stand for is the health, safety, well-being of the men and women who design, build, operate, and maintain our world. The men and women who get it done every day, that's what I stand for in my life. And it came out of that whole experience. And thank God the plant manager was such a great leader and helped me help me go through that inquiry. It didn't feel like help at the time. Well, I always knew this guy liked me and I always respected this guy. And it's yeah. one of the reasons I allowed him to have these conversations with me. But no, it was 
I've never been in a meeting as intense before. I've never been in a meeting where people cried and fight, had fights and curse words and you name it went on in that meeting. But ultimately, I discovered that I was a person who who didn't care enough about a certain group of people to even be concerned with their safety when I put them to work. To be fair, you were one of many. I'll just note also for people who haven't read the book yet, you had to get hit in the head with a binder to recognize this. So, yes, and practically it, knocked unconscious. Yeah, and it just so happened to be the safety binder. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a certain irony there. Yes. Tell me about the predisposition to lead. And if you can, you've been around a lot of leaders in a lot of different parts of the world and a lot of major companies dealing with a lot of major challenging issues. What is it about that that you recognize? Is it something that people are born with or or what is it that gives people the predisposition to just own something and go ahead and take responsibility for it? Well, it, it depends on what form of leadership we're talking about. If there's all kinds of leadership, there's the sure. grab the reins and, and no, damn the torpedoes and full speed ahead. And that's more personality driven than really a, a conscious choice. When I talk about an all in leader, it's a person who really is leading out of love versus fear, who recognizes that I play a critical role in the happiness and well-being of thousands of men and women and all their loved ones. And that is a, a sacred role to play. And this whole business we have here is really exists to allow me to put that love and concern and my intention into action. It's the mechanism through which I express to the world who I am and what I stand for. Of course, we need to make profits. Of course, we need to to do all the things a business does. But they see their business as much more than than just a profit generating machine. They see it as a mechanism for a better world. And as I say, to put into action who I am and what what it is I'm about in this world, in this life. What's your experience as the percentage of people that lead from that place? And what do you see as why some people mature to that at some point in their life and others don't? What's your experience? Most don't, but most want to, is my experience. And what's keeping them back is fear. Yeah. It isn't the way things are done. I'll be laughed at. I very often will walk with a supervisor in a, in a manufacturing facility or construction project, and they'll have an interaction with an employee who was, let's say, working less than safe. And, and at the end of that, I'll, I'll pull them aside and say, why did you talk to him? And they'll say, well, that's the rule around here. I was enforcing the rules. Okay, if it wasn't a rule, would you have talked to him? Yeah, I would have talked. Okay, so it isn't the rules. Why did you talk to him? Well, it's my job. I'm the supervisor. And we go on and on until ultimately this person says, because I care about him and I don't want her to get hurt, something like that. I say, well, it's interesting because you never in that entire conversation shared that with her and told her that you care about her. And their response is always something like, oh, God, if I do that, they'll spread rumors about me. And, yeah. you know, and they're actually correct. I'll tell them you're actually right. And the rumors are going to sound something like this. This is the best boss I ever worked. With. Right. Yeah, it's not the boss that says, Cord, I need you to be safe because we're trying to run up our shareholder value. Right. Or we want to meet our safety goal for this month and get yeah. our pizzas at the end of the month. Inspiring. Yeah. Right. 
you describe one attribute as being up for the big adventure. And to me, that is about conflict at its core. It's about dealing with, you know, the dragons. And I'll tell you just a quick story. My favorite story that I think falls into this category, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. I had a buddy and his best friend joined the army. And every single day, their gunny sergeant would come out and just berate and belittle them and scream at them and curse at them. And at the end of all that, he would say, which one of you is going to stand up here and fight me? And uh, no one ever took the charge for weeks and weeks. And then my friend's best friend, eventually, after a few weeks of this, stood up and said, I'll fight you. And the gunny sergeant looked at him and said, there's your squad leader and turned around and walked away. (laughs) (laughs) He was just trying to find out who's the person that's willing to deal with this conflict And knowing that you're totally outgunned, you're in way over your head, and there was never going to be a fight. It was just the identification of who's the person that's up for this kind of a big adventure. Yeah, and and up to stepping across that line where you have no clue how you're going to pull off what you've declared. Yeah. But you've also intentionally put yourself in the situation where there's no other choice but going forward. That's how I define commitment. When a person commits, they've intentionally put themselves in a situation where there's no other choice, it's a, it's a conscious choice to eliminate any choice but the choice of moving forward. And you intentionally put yourself in that position. And that's what all in leaders do. They declare a big game. So a, a quick example, I was working with a, a general manager of a drilling organization that drills offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, Deepwater Wells. And through conversation, the game they were up to was just meeting meeting the minimum goals they need to, to get a good rating. And that's what most people do every day. They go through their job every day, keep my boss happy and get a decent rating at the end of the year. Well, through conversation, I asked them, why aren't you why why don't you deliver every one of these wells on budget on time the first time? And and his response was, well, that's impossible. It sounds like that's the mission we want to put in front of your people. And he said, why? And I said, because it's a big game. It's, it's, it will call from your people something they're already capable of doing, but, but they've never been invited to, to go after. And, and you read about it in the book. If you read the book, the long and the short of it is they, they did that for over 18 months. And that was literally impossible to do. Or when I'm working with someone in safety and they say, we want to hurt 20% less people than we did this year, <laughs> I'll say, why, why don't we just not hurt anybody? <laughs> Yeah, I still have family businesses and staffing and our risk manager in that business always says, you know, every person has an absolute right to go home in exactly the same way that they showed up to work. I mean, they, they get to keep all their body parts and that's the bar. They're, they're not injured. Ideally, you'd want them to go home a better person, more developed yeah, as a human being. But physically, she's talking about yeah. Yeah, physically, yeah. they should come home with all their parts and, you know, that... That that's not acceptable if it's a statistic. I want to go to the last idea here and then ask you a couple other questions. They're straight out of your book. But the the last idea is that you need someone to protect you from the things that you aren't quite ready to take on. And what I see from most people in coaching is there's a lot of teaching about non-directive coaching. But as a leader, you need somebody who's going to give you direction. And sometimes you need somebody to tell you exactly what you need to do, especially when you have a lack of competence in some area or you have a blind spot. Tell me about the idea that you need somebody to protect you. 
Well, especially if you've stepped into a big game, you're in new territory. You've never navigated where you're going. I've gone I've gone through to myself and I've led many others through it. But this is all new to you. It's going to require a whole new skill set, a whole new group of realizations and awarenesses. And so sometimes you find yourself in danger. I find the person I'm coaching in danger. So an example of this, I, I was coaching a, an executive who was called in to meet with the board. And I sat down with him and I said, what are you planning on saying to the board? And by the way, he had seven minutes on the agenda. And the question was, should we continue to fund your your business unit? And he had about literally 79 slides, PowerPoint <laughs> slides. And it had all this data. And basically his message was going to be, the reason we keep screwing up is this is very difficult to do what we do. So you have to have patience with us and understand we're going to screw up from time to time. And so he's in big time danger. So I, I said to him, so you're planning on taking your resignation letter at the same time, right? And, and he said, what do you mean? And through coaching, what he ultimately said to them was he looked the CEO in the eyes and said, sir, I can turn this around in, in six weeks and we will perform at a certain level. And you, you have my word on it. He didn't present any slides because I told them they're going to be sizing you up. And asking themselves, and these people at that level make these decisions in a few seconds. That's how they get to that level. And the decision is, can I trust billions of dollars in the hands of this manager? Yeah. And they're going to assess you and they're going to say yes or no. Well, he walked out and, and was given the permission to do that. But if I wouldn't have had that coaching with him and stepped in and, and, and coached him, he would have he'd have blown it. It's interesting. Jack Welch said when he was the head of GE, they were buying or selling a business literally every day. And he would challenge people when they came in with a business idea and basically start out by telling them how stupid the idea was. It wasn't going to work. Why are they wasting his time? And unless they were willing to go to the mat and fight with him, he wasn't willing to buy the business or give him permission for the project. He was just, he, he said that the decision was about can I trust this person that they're going to go all in and do what they need to do to succeed here? Yeah. And if there was any hesitation, then they the decision had to be no, because how do you tell? If they're not all in, why should I be all in? It's this willingness to go all in and say, I own it and uh, I'll do what's necessary. Yeah, you can count on me. I'm going to shift gears and ask you just uh, two more questions, but First off, the fact that you got to meet Deming is interesting. I wish I would have had that experience. But the idea that he shared with you that what's most important is not measurable, and you were a younger court dial at that time, and I think all of us tend to think that we we have to manage the metrics alone. But if you work in business for any period of time, you find out that the soft stuff, the human stuff, is what actually produces the metrics in the first place, and that all the work is not on the metrics. It's not on the scoreboard. It's about how we're playing the game together in the first place. Tell me about that meeting with Deming and, and what you took from that. Well, I was invited to sit in with about 500 managers, top senior managers in Ford Motor Company in a session with him for a week. And it was a, a watershed event in my life. But the conversation you're talking to, in a break, I walked up to him and said, Mr. Deming, I work in the realm of caring, concern, commitment, all these intangible things. How do you measure these things? And, you know, at that time, I believed what many people are told. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. 
And I kept pressing him for that. And finally, he turned to me and said in this low drone voice that he had, you know, young man, when you grow up and mature, you're going to come to realize most of the things that are most important for business, productivity, safety, whatever, cannot be quantified. And then he turned away from me and started talking to somebody else. And it was clear to me that he wanted me to think about that. And that really changed the way my whole approach to, to leading in business. And, and one of the things I've discovered is there's basically this system behavioral approach to producing results, which will give you a certain level of approach. But most of results and performance are created within the self of the individuals that you're working with what they believe about themselves and each other and your vision and all those things. And what goes on amongst these individuals, these people work for you. I call that the social field. And it's really that that determines how people behave. It's their social interactions and beliefs that are driving what's going on. That's, that's why most procedures are not followed. Right. Most systems are not, are not used the way they're intended. And it's because people tend to work these things out socially and amongst themselves. And most leaders are oblivious to these two fields, what I call the self and social fields. And even if they become aware of them, they have no idea how to work in those fields. And so they're missing a big part of the performance picture. The biggest part. Yeah, I agree. There's a, a book called The Little Prince by Antoine de Zupere, a French fighter pilot. And in one of the characters, a fox says to the little boy, what is essential is invisible to the eye. And that's it. I mean, it's the things that really matter you can't see. Caring, commitment, you know, there, there's not a metric that we look at for those things. But the metrics that we are looking at, that's what's behind those metrics. And I want to have you say a few words about this because in your book, there's so much in this particular area. But we look at data and we make decisions based on data, but we really don't understand the data that we're looking at. And we don't understand the drivers as well as we might. Can you tell me why we were doing what we're doing? I know we're going to go back to fear here for sure, but what do you really have to look for to look past what some people might use to rationalize a decision? Well, one of the things that Deming taught me was that we use data because it's a great way to avoid having to lead or having to know how things actually work or understand your people. So it's much easier to sit at your desk and and look at numbers and make decisions based on that. So it's because I guess we're lazy for one reason. The second problem with data is, as most people have never been taught how to use data, and they're just they're just reacting to noise in data. And I've written a number of posts about this that most of the data you have is worthless, and the way you're responding to it, you're making things worse. It's dimming called it tampering with the system. And most of us are what Deming called as hacks when it comes to data. So before I would ever use data in my business, I would get a qualified statistician in to teach us how to use this data appropriately. But again, most of the things that I have found, so I've worked in areas where we couldn't have no, we couldn't have any systems. We couldn't have any equipment. We were using bamboo for scaffolding. No one had any safety equipment. No one had any, there were no procedures. And we had to do it all socially. And what I found that an outstanding leader who gives people a good reason to come to work every day, to care about and love about love each other, take care of each other, look out for each other, and to care about the performance that we need to generate on this project in this organization will get you better performance every day than any any system or, or any, any uh, data counting process. Court, there are thousands of people on LinkedIn who call themselves data-driven leaders. God bless them. 
<laughs> Tamperers. There's a, you probably have never heard this song, but it's by Roger Wilmans. If you can't roller skate in a buffalo herd, but you can be happy <laughs> if you've a mind to, you know, if you've a mind to, you know, you can be happy. God bless you. And and I'm not against data, but again, if you know, understand data and understand variation, how to use it, it's it's very useful. But most of the time, most of the things that are affecting the performance in your organization cannot be quantified. They're not accessed through observation. They're accessed through conversation. They're accessed through social interaction and getting out and getting to know people and talk to people and literally having your finger on the pulse of people's feelings, their self-image, their sense of belonging, their sense of purpose. Those are all things that, that just cannot be quantified. But you can determine where they're at, where you're at in your organization. Yeah, actually, you have to go out and, and talk to your people and get to know them. It's the deeply human things that don't change over time. Yes. And, and you know, people will say, well, what does self-image have to do with performance? Well, you can never outperform your self-image mm-hmm. as an individual and organization. So most organizations, they think what is needed, especially, for example, the oil industry is going through this huge upset around oil prices just plummeting. And you hear all the time in that or in that industry, what they're asking us to do is impossible. We can't be profitable at $40. Well, there's a social challenge there. That's in people's self-image. What are you going to do to have them perceive themselves as, as that is not only doable, it's within their control. That's a leadership challenge that most leaders don't know how to, how to address or deal with. Your book, Heretics to Heroes, uh, Memoir on Modern Leadership, is a great book. And I want to compliment you as a writer. You're a terrific writer. Thank you. Appreciate it. And you're a terrific storyteller. And I would recommend the book to people who are not only leaders, but aspiring to to lead, because I think that the book is a really, really strong recipe. And I think if people would look at their own stories the way that you've looked at yours and understand the learning outcomes, I think that they would become better leaders rather quickly. So where do people go to find you, Court? Courtdial.com. And I made it real simple. Just go to courtdial.com forward slash in the arena. You can find out about my book. You can find out about everything about Court Dial. Excellent. Thank you so much for your great work. And thanks for coming on to share with us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Tony. I enjoyed it. That was my friend Court Dial, and you're going to find him at courtdial.com. Again, the book is Heretics to Heroes, a memoir on modern leadership. You will find that in the show notes. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com, where I blog and post daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. My last name, you'll find that in the show notes as well. And I do a daily show there called Every Day. You can also find my new book, The Lost Art of Closing, Winning the Ten Commitments that Drive Sales at thelostartofclosing.com. And if you get there, you might find some bonuses still available to you, but go pick the book up, pick it up for your team. And until next time, I will see you back here in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.